Welcome to another edition of Opera for Everyone. I'm your host, Pat Wright, and I am thrilled to say we are joined for this episode by Greg. Hello. Lovely to have you back on the show again. Good to be back. And we're going to be listening to the Puccini opera Tosca. And I just want to highlight the fact that Greg did do one other Puccini opera with me, and that was La Fanchula del West. Episode 45. Yes, yes. But right from the start, here you are. And tell me why you chose to do Tosca with me. I think of Tosca as a touchstone. Touchstones are metaphors now, but once they were pieces of finely grained stone that you'd rub against a gold alloy. They were real things. To grade the alloy by observing the color of the market made. Huh. Tosca is a touchstone in that other works of art can be compared to it. What other works of art engage our emotions and our intellect as powerfully, show us truth as starkly, or understand our humanity as deeply. Humanity, truth, and emotion. Yeah, Tosca hits those marks. And what other works of art carry this intensity and build this confidently to their climax. And what a climax it is, but that comes later. We'll try to do Tosca justice today, and we will fail. (laughs) But we'll try. (laughs) To encounter the sublime is to stand silent in awe, and standing silent in awe doesn't really work in the context of a podcast. Well, we're going to give a little background, a little little gloss to it all, and it's a magnificent show. We'll talk about Tosca, but you should see it, and you should see it again. And if you haven't seen it, uh, we envy you when you go. Hmm. Tosca is one of the most produced, one of the most well-known, one of the most famous, one of the most loved of all operas, but that was not always the case. No, it was not. These days and for a long time, it's always in the top 10 of productions, but it was well received when it premiered in Rome in the year 1900. But commentators over the years, some have loved it and some have have called it too sensational, too gritty. In fact, there was one mid 20th century opera historian who famously called it a shabby little shocker, which is really not fair to Tosca, (laughs) the, the opera. Although there is torture, attempted rape, murder, execution, two suicides, all in two hours. True. Verismo. Verismo. Tell us what that means. Verismo is the Italian take on realism. Realism as a literary form was very popular in France this time. People like Emile Zola. And when the realism tendency made its way to Italy, it expressed itself in the great Italian art form, opera, verismo. Cavalleria Rusticana is the bolt of lightning of verismo that really gets people's attention, much beloved. But in the works of Puccini, many of them have elements of this verismo, this slice of life, gritty realism. We're not going to have gods and goddesses. We're not going to be focused on kings and queens. We're going to be focused on people and their trials and tribulations. And it's Tosca, which is the full opera that is the most verismo of Puccini's works. Also, Il Tabaro, part of Il Tritico, but Tosca, Tosca remains. I mean, for that matter, Carmen, that other always in the top 10, Bizet's opera, Carmen, also verismo. Almost a precursor to film noir is a way to think about it. Yeah, yeah. So that little bit of music before we even started speaking here on this show, that was all we get by way of an overture in this particular opera. 
Less than half a minute, not a standard overture. Puccini was never big on overtures. His tended to be quite short. This is extraordinarily short because we hurdle right into the action at the beginning of this opera after hearing some of the themes that are going to present themselves as the opera goes along. Yeah, in midi race, we immediately find ourselves in a church where an escaped political fugitive is seeking shelter. Right. And this is not just a dramatic tool to have somebody who's suffering and escaped. This is set in a real time, in a real place. This opera, Tosca, premiered in Rome in the year 1900. And the action of the opera actually takes place in the city of Rome in the year 1800, in the space of less than 24 hours. 1800 puts us right in the middle of the Napoleonic period, when Napoleon is battling against the forces of traditional monarchy who have taken over Rome. And Napoleon and the Austrians are fighting one another. And the people who are Republicans, in other words, Napoleon's the good guy in this story. He's not a character, but he's off stage. He's a presence. He's mentioned. Napoleon represents the forces of non-monarchical power, the possibility that people can use their talents and advance in the world, as opposed to, unless you're born an aristocrat, you're completely out of luck, and you will be not even treated equally under the law. So this man who has escaped, who shows up, he was a political prisoner because he supported the Napoleonic ideals, and not the folks who are in charge now, who are the royalists. And he was in Well, he was in a a place (laughs) that we're going to get to in the third act. And every single, we have, it's a three-act opera. Every single location is a real place in Rome where things truly happened that are dramatized here. So we're starting out in this church, the church of San Andrea della Valle. And this is where this prisoner has escaped to because he's going to find refuge here. Yeah, why, why a church? Why this church? Practically, the church does have an altarpiece with the right piece of art. It does have a place in the chapel where one could hide. The opera could be staged in the actual church and has been. There's a deeper answer though, which is that this is St. Andrew's Church and St. Andrew is the patron saint of singers. Tosca, the title character of our opera, is a diva both in story and in our reality. Mm. One of the greatest of singers. This is the church of her patron saint. The other reason is what I'll call the story answer. One of the reasons Tosca is a touchstone is it asks questions that matter. And one of the questions deeply encoded by evolution into our being is, where do we seek protection? Two answers for many of us are we run to our mothers for protection Mm -hmm. and we run to our church for protection. The word mothering carries a sense of nurturing protection. You do not walk between a mother bear and her cubs. (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) The word church is historically architecturally and legally associated with the word sanctuary. In the elegant concision that characterizes all of Tosca, these two concepts, protection by mother and protection by your faith, are combined here into the Church of St. Andrew, the protector of singers, and in the Church's iconography of motherhood, including its statue and its in-progress painting of Madonna. Anilati is running to the Church for protection. He has been told to go to the statue of Madonna. He shouts, here is the key. He is hidden, receives food in disguise, and recruits an ally. The Madonna is almost literally protecting him as the statue holds the key to the hiding place, and the painting is revealed to be that of his sister, who has helped him escape from prison. 
we're previewing the story a little bit mm. with the understanding that there are no spoilers in opera. No spoilers in opera. <laughs> but it's also helpful in approaching this work to think about how layered even the choice of settings is. Yes, and Puccini actually visited Rome to scout these locations. You wouldn't think it was necessary. He certainly didn't do it for all of his operas, particularly the ones set further afield. But he did go to these places so that he could get the sense of how they sounded and the the bells that will ring in the opera and the Te Deum that we're going to hear at the end of this first act. These are all things that he researched for a reality in his opera to, to give it more power. Ah, finalmente, il terror mi ha stolto, vedi a ceffi di spirro in ogni volta. La pila, la colonna. And now we return to that escaped political prisoner on the stage. He's he's searching. He's a little bit frantic because people are probably chasing him, trying to catch him. And he's looking for a key. The key to the chapel where he will hide from his pursuers. And so he does. He hides. But the stage is not left empty for long. There's a, a bit of comic relief as the sacristan comes in and cleans paintbrushes. <laughs> yes. But yes. more importantly, our hero, literally our hero, not our protagonist, but our hero, Cavaradossi, enters. Yes, Cavaradossi. He is the artist. Tosca's a singer. He is a painter. And again, at the risk of using the word concision too many times today, he sings this beautiful aria about the duality of beauty, thinking about the woman he's painting and thinking about his lover. This play is about dualities, and that's a concept that's being interjected here. But more importantly, this play is about character. And in the introduction to him, what we learn is the depth of his art, the extraordinary effect that beauty and the pursuit of beauty has on him. Let's listen to Mario Cavaradossi as he expresses that appreciation of beauty. Thank you. 
Well, that was the painter, Cavaradossi, and he was opining about the nature of beauty and contrasting his beautiful Tosca with the woman he has just painted. It's actually a picture of the Madonna, but his model was blonde and Tosca has dark hair and dark eyes. And if you heard a voice that was not a tenor, that was not Cavaradossi, he's a tenor. The lower voice, that's the sacristan trying to be pious in the face of Cavaradossi's musings. The sacristan leaves, and hearing him leave, Agnolati comes on stage and is surprised to see his friend, Cavaradossi. Oh, and he's so happy to see his friend. But his friend doesn't recognize him. Cavaradossi does not recognize Agnolati because Agnolati has suffered so horribly in prison. Mm. This is an important plot point, but it's also an important story point because the image structure of this entire opera is one of disguises, lies, deceptions, plots. Yeah. And this is where the concept of disguise is introduced subtly and powerfully when Gerardosi fails to recognize Agnolati. Hmm. They are interrupted by someone saying, Mario, Mario. Mario, Mario. <laughs> yes. And it's Tosca. So Agnolati goes back into hiding and Tosca enters. Shall we play a little of her entry music? Yes. <laughs> Tosca has entered the stage and she is instantly suspicious because the door was locked and she had to wait for Mario to let her in. And she's naturally jealous mm. anyway. That is her tragic flaw. Yes. Interesting to, to think about the names for just a moment. Mario Kiridosi is a hero in the classic sense that he is willing to sacrifice his own life unthinkingly for another, mm. as he has proclaimed to his friend uh, immediately upon meeting him. Yes, and he also notes when he sees the friend, oh, you were a consul in the Roman Republic. So he's acknowledging the political role and the political reason that Agnolotti was in prison and showing sympathy for that Republican cause. And Mario means manly. It, you know, it's derived from Mars, the god of war. Mm. Tosca's first name is, is Floria, which of course means flower. Right. And so they are fully developed multidimensional characters, but part of that characterization is that he embodies uh, masculine power and she embodies feminine power. Yeah. So in the last sequence, we were introduced to Mario and learned about him. In this sequence, we learn about Floria Tosca. We learn of her deep religiosity 
We learn of her sensuality, and we learn of the deep love between Tosca and Kiveradosi. We also learn of her tragic flaw, her deep jealousy. Mm-hmm. Let's listen to their love song. One of the best-known songs from this opera. I just love this interaction between Cavaradossi and Tosca because there's this frisson between them. She is jealous, thinking there might be another woman, but she wants to be persuaded that it's not true, that there's nothing to be jealous of. And Cavaradossi does a pretty good job there. And she talks about her love of spending time with him in his beautiful little villa that they're going to go to. And she's, she's in fact gone to set up the rendezvous after she performs a small concert that she's expected to sing in because she is our diva. And he is agreeing to these things and rushing her along, rushing her along because... We've got Agnolotti off stage. (laughs) And every time he tries to rush her along, the jealousy flares again. She thinks, well, why can I not stay? Is there a good reason? In fact, Cavaradossi will tell us later, by way of telling Agnolotti, the reason is that she's such a pious woman that she tells her confessor everything. So he's protecting her by not letting her know the true reason for needing her to be gone. And that's important because we talked about how church is associated as sanctuary, but in this world, 
The church is not sanctuary. No. In this church, the confessor is part of the political system. It's also important in this part of the opera to notice a specific element of her religiousness, which is that she believes in forgiveness. Yes. Multiple times in the play, starting now, it's a beautifully, deftly buried hook. He's been trying to kiss her. She's been pointing out that they're right in front of Madonna. Can't do it in she the church. <laughs> finally lets him kiss her. She was always intending for that moment. She mm. was simply prolonging the mm-hmm. anticipation. And he's teasing her about, can I really kiss you in front of the Madonna? And she says, she will forgive me. And she will return to the concept of forgiveness at each critical turning point in this story. So Tosca finally leaves the scene. Agnolotti returns and explains to Cavaradossi, yes, it's my wonderful sister who risked everything to save me by hiding these women's clothes, by hiding this disguise for me to escape from the clutches of the villainous Scarpia. So now the sister is in danger from this terrible person, Scarpia, as is Agnolotti, as will others become. But at the name Scarpia, Cavaradossi instantly calls him both a lecher and a bigot who abuses power. He abuses the power of the state to destroy freedom and to serve his lust. So Cavaradossi has the measure of this villain of the piece, Scarpia, before we even meet him, and he's told us. We'll talk about this more later, but in terms of the genre of the story, there are important interactions between Cavaradossi and Anulati in their description of Scarpia. One of the conventions that we all know and love is the praise of the monster before the monster arrives. How bad (laughs) is the bad guy? Yeah. And the fact that they almost stopped the opera to let us know how bad he is. And what's so bad about him is his hypocrisy, that he lies, that he is not who he pretends to be, that he exists in this realm of wrapping evil in a lie of truth. He's the chief of police, but he's also the agent of tyranny and chaos in this world. Which was famously true of this time period under the the rule after Napoleon's forces were forced out and the royalist forces were in. It was famous that the police were corrupt, so that's part of that historical research that Sardou did for his play. And also, interestingly here, Garadosi does give the hero speech where, however it's translated in the libretto that you're looking at, he says that he will stand by his friend if it costs him his life. Yes. His friend is also, of course, we should point out, a hero. His friend could escape to safety, but the plan they come up with Mm -hmm. is for his friend to remain in Rome, essentially putting his life at risk for the benefit of the people he once served. They believe in the cause, absolutely. And in fact, the cause will come onto the stage again in reference form. Bonaparte, Napoleon Bonaparte, is talked about by the sacristan when the choir boys all rush onto the stage. And they're all excited about the fact that there's this big battle going on between their side and Bonaparte. And the sacristan clearly lets us know that he is not on the side of Bonaparte not on the side of the Republicans. He's on the side of the Royalists, as you said, about the church being on that side. He is a representative of the church and its values at this time. There's some parallel here to what happens in Hamlet. 
<laughs> we are seeing things occur on stage that may or may not matter in some sense. It mm. matters deeply to the lives of these characters. It is a matter of life and death to these characters. It is a matter of freedom and tyranny to these characters. And yet, the answer may not come from what happens on stage. The answer may come from military battles off stage. Here, the news has been received that Napoleon has been defeated. The people who are in support of the current political regime in Rome are exultant, and the people who are looking to Napoleon for hope are crushed. Everyone prepares for the celebration the state will hold that night, including a performance by Tosca. Tosca herself, I would say, is an apolitical character. She has a role in society. She's the prima donna in Rome. She is the top singer. She is wanted for concerts, and she is commanded to perform in this victory celebration. So the boys' choir gets excited because their side won. The sacristan is pleased. Cavallo Rossi is no longer on the scene, so we don't see his response, though we can imagine it. And into all of this excitement, all of this commotion in the church, enters Scarpia. Before we talk about Scarpia, though, because I know you like jokes like this, I will point out... <laughs> How true it is that she is apolitical. Later in the opera, confronted with the reality of the political evil in her world, she sings an aria about how she's always been true to her art, and isn't that enough? Which is, in fact, the most famous aria from this show. And if you think about it, what she's saying there is a little tone deaf. <laughs> okay, we'll get to... Well, that's an act, too. <laughs> <laughs> Don't derail me now. All right. Into this scene of celebration and commotion in the church, Scarpia comes in. And true to the point that you made earlier, where he's a hypocrite to the bone, he's like, oh, such commotion in a church. Have some respect. Yeah, Scarpia, thanks. <laughs> but... But the sacristan explains they're getting ready for a celebration in the church, the Tadeum, the traditional hymn of celebration, of victory. Scarpia has other things on his mind, though. He is chasing someone who has escaped his clutches. He's looking for Agnolotti, and he's also aware that there's some connection between Agnolotti and Cavaradossi, so he'd be happy to find either of them, and he finds neither. We should take a diversion here. Okay. We talked about Floria, means flowers. Mm -hmm. We talked about Mario, means manly or you know, derived from Mars. Let's talk about Baron Scarpia. Scarpia can mean shoe, <laughs> but there's also a derivation of take or capture, you know, which would work. It can also mean spider's web, mm. which is what we'll go with here. Yeah, I think so. And while we're here, can we just admire that the word scar is in there? Mm-hmm. Just that S, the sound of the serpent in the garden, and the consensus favorite villain's first name letter. Satan, Sauron, Sermon, <laughs> Salazar, Slytherin, <laughs> Severus, Snape, Darcidius, Sinestro, Spike, Scar, oh, okay. Scrooge, Smog, Salab, <laughs> Shrek, which is an inversion like everything else in the movie, Sargeras, Savannas. <laughs> Your research is different from mine, so thank you for that. <laughs> and before we go, Anulati, of course, means angel. Of course. Well, Scarpia's there, 
looking for his prey, and he does not find his people, but he finds one piece of the disguise that Agnolotti's sister had left for him, left behind. He finds a fan, and he knows he's got something that he can use. What's fabulous about this scene is the way that it is an almost literal descent of our understanding of this character. He arrives on the scene as a policeman mm. looking for an escaped fugitive, mm-hmm. looking for clues. Multiple times he says, we're, you know, we're just here looking for clues. But we know he's been prefigured as, as a deep villain. We know that he has violated the sanctuary the church would offer. Mm-hmm. Sanctuary is, is a concept that comes from the mercy of kings. This is a world in which the kings have no mercy. There is no mercy. His violation of the sanctuary is proof of that. Yeah. His hypocrisy around the commotion the children are causing is part of that. <laughs> yes. His instructions to the henchmen to search everywhere without attracting attention because they are in violation of, of everyone's understanding of their role as peacekeepers. And as the scene goes on, we realize that he is interested not just in finding the political prisoner. Mm. He's interested in tying him to Kiveradosi, who is a Voltarian, a member of essentially a an opposing intellectual faction to the faction that he is protecting or promulgating in his role as the police chief. And we learn that he doesn't just want to catch the political prisoner and maybe find the co-conspirator. He wants to kill Kiverodosi, and he wants to seduce Floria. And depending on the production and depending on how much you read the uh, act synopsis before the opera began, you were drinking your champagne, um, The realization is there or it dawns as we go through this act that he's not a policeman maintaining order. He's not someone who wants to execute the co-conspirators. He's not someone who wants to use his power to violate our heroine. He is someone who actually wants to damn her. And his evil is bottomless. And part of the extraordinary emotional power of this is the trajectory we're on. We start with a painter pursuing art. We meet a singer pursuing art we meet the comic character of the sacristan. We know that there is a political drama going on, and we assume that we are in a political drama. But in fact, the evil at play is far greater than anything at the beginning of this play would prepare us for. And that acceleration of the revelation of how deep the evil is accelerates right to the climax of this act. That's right. And he also gives us another hint of the depth of his evil by knowingly comparing himself to Iago, that famous Shakespearean character who in Othello, Othello in the opera or Othello in the Shakespeare, had a handkerchief which he used to inflame Othello's jealousy so that he would murder his own wife. And here he says, yes, I have a fan. And I know that this will inflame jealousy because Tosca is a famously jealous woman. We saw it right in the beginning with her. And he, in fact, does use that fan when she comes on the scene to say, oh, Cavaradosi's not here because he's with that other woman. Here, I have some proof. And he shows her the fan. And that's almost all it takes. So he does push her a little bit more. And he compliments her piety about the, the great faith that she shows. But he says, you can't, you can't trust this other woman, Tosca. And Tosca is in a lather. She said, I, I came down here tonight because I, I've been commanded to sing at the celebration, so I will not be able to keep my plans. But 
But now I find he's actually betraying me. All of that pretty talk he gave me earlier, that that was just a lie. And you know she's going to go find Cavaradossi and confront him because she says, I will interrupt this tryst that you have set up, Mario. And off she goes. And Scarpi says he would give his life to dry Tosca's tears. <laughs> Giving the hero line, but from someone who is the force of antagonism to all things heroic in this play, to someone who is a villain beyond imaginings. It's interesting to, to just stop for a moment to compare this to, to Rosen Cavalier, which also has a plot. where someone is going to use their power to seduce one of the women, or Marriage of Figaro, where someone is going to use their power to seduce a woman. Those characters can be played as tyrants, or they can be played as comic figures. (laughs) Not Scarpia. (laughs) There is no playing Scarpia as a comic figure. No. Scarpia is, through the association, his own personal association with Iago, is depicted as one of the, the deepest negations of all characters. Yeah, he is evil incarnate. Well, with Tosca taken off to go find Mario in his villa, Scarpia sees that his plan has worked to perfection. He sends his men, take three agents and a carriage, he says, and follow her. The falcon is going to lead me to my prey. But the prey of catching those two men is not top in his heart. He lets us know that the greater victory is going to be Tosca herself. And he is under no illusions. An interesting thing about most fiction is that the villains think of themselves as the good guys. Good point. (laughs) This is a villain who says, Tosca, you make me forget God. Yes. He knows exactly who he is. Yes. Yes. Well, let's listen to a little bit of that. It's this wonderful overlay of the Te Deum at the end of Act One, where there's this celebration of the military victory. And it's also Scarpia feeling victory is at hand and that Tosca will be his.
That was very powerful. Do you think that some of the power comes from the repetition of the motifs? We haven't really spoken about motifs yet, but Puccini indeed makes great use of these musical signatures, these themes, these motifs for characters and ideas as well. Right. An example would be the start of the opera, where we hear Scarpia's motif immediately followed by Agnolotti's motif as indicating the pursuit. Well, let's listen to that again. Short but powerful. Those three chords, that's Baron Scarpio. And then it almost sounds like someone running, someone being pursued. The ba 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 ba. That's Agnolotti. And that doesn't appear everywhere in the opera, but it shows up a lot in the first act, which, again, no spoilers in opera. We're not going to see Agnolotti again now that the first act is over. But this Scarpia motif, that those first three chords that we hear in the very beginning of the opera, they show up not just when Scarpia shows up, not just at the very beginning of the overture, but they show up when people are thinking about Scarpia or talking about him. For example, when we mentioned that Agnolotti explains to Cavaradossi that his sister had risked everything in order to help save him from the Baron Scarpia, that motif shows up. We may or may not hear this consciously, but we certainly hear it subconsciously. Well, that is the power of this musical technique that whether or not you notice and make a mental note of it, it's still affecting how you perceive the action on the stage and how you experience the opera. Absolutely. One of the things we won't have enough time to talk about today is how this opera operates on the audience's conscious mind and the subconscious mind. But this is one indication of how information is being conveyed directly into the subconscious. Yeah. There's been a lot of buildup in this first act, musically and with references to Scarpia and I just love this moment when he finally appears on stage in the first act, where we have all the commotion of the choir boys getting ready for this tedeum that they're going to perform, and then Scarpia is about to enter. I'm going to play this little clip, and I promise you, you know the second that we are ready to expect Scarpia walking in. So it makes sense now to loop back around to our ending of Act One, that final little piece, and you will hear the the power of this evil villain, Scarpia, in the end of Act One again. Let's listen to those motifs. we're not done with Baron Scarpia at the end of Act One. He will return again in all his menacing power in Act Two, 
And at the end of Act Two, the Baron Scarpia motif is going to return in a very different state. No spoilers in opera, but it's when Scarpia meets his end. other motifs as well. It's not all Baron Scarpia. Tosca has a motif. Love has a motif. Jealousy has a motif. All of these have power as we listen to the music. If we, if we communicate anything today, the thing we're trying to communicate is a way that all elements of this opera work together to intensify the effect on the audience. Spectacular. One other thing that I wanted to talk about before we return to the action are choices in presenting this opera says something about Tosca that in this show, we're barely going to be skimming the surface of what goes on in the short opera. An example of what we'd love to talk about if we had the time in detail would be the choices that the actors and the director are required to make in producing this opera. Mm. Just as, as one minor example, what are we to make of the relationship between the political structure and the religious structure in Act One? There are at least three different ways the director and the actors can make decisions to communicate different relationships to us. First of all, the church can simply be portrayed as corrupt. The confessor and the sacristan stand ready to assist the police state. And exactly what voice and what gesture does the sacristan answer Scarpius' questions can be one way to imply this. Another interpretation is that the church can simply be portrayed as weaponless, not able to stand up to the men and weapons of the police state. Mm. In the production, is a weapon brandished as the sacristan is answering questions? Is the sacristan assaulted? Another interpretation would be that the church and Scarpia's government are intellectually aligned, mm. uh, that they share ideology. Krabidosi and Anglotti are Voltarians, a competing ideological faction to both the monarchist and to the church. To what extent does the sacristan see Krabidosi's actions and beliefs as sinful? So we'll, we'll close with that, but the point is that this isn't one opera. There's an underlying richness in both the libretto and the composition that allows a multitude of artistic interpretations about what is really going on here. You know, that's such an interesting point. It's certainly true for great operas, as it is for great plays. The people putting on the productions, the various productions and the choices they make, do influence the experience that the audience has. But a rich work of art like this, or like a Shakespeare play, allows for that. And if I could be permitted one more digression before we return to the action. Of course. <laughs> Let's talk about the lies in this opera, lies broadly defined. Oh. Almost all fiction is in some sense a lie. <laughs> Things didn't really happen that way, which is ironic because fiction is where we go to find truth. Yeah. There is much truth in Tosca, and there are many lies, so so many lies. <laughs> Every major character in Tosca lies, if we include the lies they tell themselves. Mm -hmm. Their world is built of lies. And finally, the climax of this opera will turn on lies, including yeah. a form of play within a play. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yeah, we'll come back to some of the, the lies. By lies, I mean lies, disguises, subterfuges, hidings, deceptions, performance, and all matters of pretend. Fascinating. The lies they speak, the lies they think, 
and their rationalizations, their conscious selves tell them when they deny their subconscious desires. We could talk about this and nothing else for the entire show, yeah. but I'll throw out a handful of examples. Mm. And when you watch Tosca, appreciate that lies are the mortar that holds the stone of this world together. Oh. Agnolati's prison injuries are a form of disguise. Agnolati's plans to escape in disguise and his plans are to hide for most of the act in the chapel and then in the well. His sister has previously pretended to pray to cover that she's actually leaving him a key to the hiding place and leaving him a disguise. Gervadosi is complicit in hiding Agnolati in the chapel and then instructing him to go to the cottage to hide. Gervadosi lies to Tosca to protect Agnolati. He lies to the sacristan. Tosca lies to herself about Gervadosi's faithfulness. When she is tricked by Scarpia, she cries, he's deceived me. That's true in that Scarpia is standing there and has just deceived her, but false in that she's saying that about Caravadosi. <laughs> the libretto emphasizes that she, as a diva, is not only a great singer, but a great actress, a performer of fictions. Scarpia is first described as a hypocrite, metaphorically someone who wears a mask. His every speech and every action is a lie or covers a lie. Mm. His title is chief of police, but he's not an agent of the law, quite the opposite. Some of his first words are, think twice before you answer. Mm. He expects his questions to be met with lies. He decides to craft a lie he himself thinks puts him in the company of Iago, a lie to Tosca that will play on her jealousy so that she will inadvertently betray where Agnolati and Caravadosi have run to. He ends the act, exulting that his lie will cause Caravadosi's death and Tosca's surrender to his arms. <sighs> in listing some of the ways people lie in the act, I have described essentially all the dramatic action in the act. <laughs> They're True. all lying, hiding, disguising, deceiving each other and themselves. Why we lie and when lying is justified are two of the big questions that we ironically look to fiction to answer. I know we keep talking about fiction, but there's a lot that you just said that applies to real life and the way people interact with each other every day. And because we always have one Homeric reference. I wasn't going to ask you about that, but I've been waiting. (laughs) Many works of fiction have lies as the image structure, one of which is the Odyssey. The Odyssey, yep. That works. Don Quixote, 2001 A Space Odyssey. We could go on to mention recent novels, such as The Luminaries or Trust. Yes. Let's return now to the action, but let's talk about the action that occurs offstage between Acts 1 and Act 2. It's fascinating that this three-act opera had to be reduced from the five-act play, and there's quite a lot that goes on between Act 1 and Act 2, because... Act two is going to open in Scarpia's apartments in the Palazzo Farnese, totally new but real location in Rome. But it's not that he's just walked over there and we've left all the other characters frozen in time. No, not at all. Much of the action in Tosca does happen offstage. For example, we don't see Agnolati's escape from prison. Mm. Act one occurs in the afternoon, act two the evening of that day, act three the following morning. Between act one and act two, Tosca goes to the villa and finds not Caravadosi and the Marquisa in embrace, but instead finds Caravadosi and his friend, the escaped political prisoner, Agnolati. They tell her everything. Her jealousy ends with the epiphany that Caravadosi has lied to her only to protect her right. and to protect Agnolati. He has been faithful to her. Mm. She quickly leaves the villa. Caravadosi hides Agnolati in his well. Scarpius henchman Spoletta, note that S, and his <laughs> men have followed Tosca, so break into the house. They do not find Agnolati but find and seize Caravadosi, whom they will deliver to Scarpia. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Both the henchmen of Scarpia, their name begins with S. I don't know what to make of that. Snakes, I guess. Yes. Yes. Can we talk a bit about the libretto and the source? Of course. 
it originates as a play by the very successful, prolific playwright from France, Victorien Sardou. Sardou wrote over 70 plays in his lifetime. He was prolific as a playwright, also as a librettist, though he didn't write the libretto for this. Um, I'd like to just mention that 25 of his plays inspired operas, because that was the source of a lot of the operas, were the stories that, that playwrights had written that captured the imaginations of people putting operas together. Fedora is one of the ones that you might be familiar with by Giordano. Uh, Offenbach even had one of his plays turned into an operetta. But the reason why our opera by Puccini, Tosca, becomes this opera is that Puccini himself in Milan saw a performance of La Tosca, the name of the play, in which Sarah Bernhard, the role was written for her, in which Sarah Bernhard played Tosca. Interestingly, when she played her international tours, she said, don't bother to translate any of my lines or any of the lines into the local language. I will perform it in French because I am such a great actress that everyone will understand. And Puccini proved the truth of that comment. He loved it. He loved it so much. He followed it from Rome to Turin just so he could see it again with her. And this is before any of his successful operas had been produced. He knew he was an opera guy. He knew he was going to write great operas, but he had not even written Manon Lescaut. He had one opera that didn't do too well, but he tried to get the rights to it. He had a music publisher, Riccardi, who said, I'm sorry, you're out of luck. This other fellow, Franchetti, he has the rights. We, we can't acquire them. Years go by. He's extremely successful with Manon Lescaut, and then even more so with La Boheme. And at this point, he's got Sardou, the playwright, on his side. And Riccardi sends his agents, I love this story, Riccardi sends his agents to the fellow who had bought the rights originally, Franchetti, and said, Oh, you can't really turn this into an opera. It's too brutal. It's too gritty. It's too shocking. It's too frismo. Frismo. It's got all those awful things you described, the torture and the murders and the suicides. And sure enough, Franchetti said, okay, I'll, I'll give it up. We'll work on something else. And in a heartbeat, Puccini had it. Also worth noting, Verdi, who was in his 80s at the time, <laughs> had seen the play and he'd even seen the treatment that Ilica, who was going to write the libretto for the first guy, ultimately becomes one of the two librettos on Puccini's. He read the treatment that Ilica did, and he's like, this is going to make a great opera. I maybe should come out of retirement. Verdi said this. He didn't come out of retirement to write it, so Puccini got it. And it was two librettists, Luigi Ilica and Giuseppe Giacosa, who wrote the libretto for this. And they're the same ones who had done the libretto for La Boheme, good track record, and also been two of many who worked on Manon Lescaut. What's also interesting is that while this opera is based on a play, the play is based on many real-life events and characters. Yes. Many of which are amalgamated from real-life personages where multiple historic figures are represented in the play as a single character. Yes, and Sardou was famous for doing extensive research for his plays because he really did want to ground them in real events or, or give them the flavor of reality by historical fiction in a way. The segue from talking about the libretto is to talk about what genre this story is. Mm. Because Tosca is a work that people return to again and again uh, and again, 
sometimes it's fun to have something in the back of your mind that you're thinking about as you rewatch it. And one of the things to think about is, is just that question. What genre is this? The simple answer is it's an opera, but that's <laughs> a presentational genre. That's not really a story genre. Is this an epic? Is this about freedom versus tyranny? Is there a rebel? Is there a tyrant? Yes. Who's the rebel? Well, Agnolotti first, Cavaradossi also, and the way you're looking at me, I'm thinking you've got Tosca in mind. Yes. How about action adventure? <laughs> Are there stakes of life and death? Is there a hero, a villain, and a victim? Yes, yes, yes. Check, check, check. And I'm looking at you again because some of the switches, Tosca is the victim and then becomes the hero. She does. We, we will promise everyone we will get to act two and three with some of these details, but, but it's good to be prepared. It's good to be prepared because so much happens in act two and act three. It's just useful to go into it with some of this groundwork in place. Yeah. Is the genre horror? Is there a value of survival versus damnation? Is there a monster and a victim? I would say yes. Yeah, I would say yes too. And we will absolutely return to that point. Is this a testing plot? Maybe not the main plot, but Agnolotti's plot and Caravadosi's plot are plots of willpower against life-threatening forces. Oh, indeed. Is this a crime story? I, I mean, in the sense that somebody's searching for someone who's broken the law. Yeah, from Scarpia's perspective, yes. There's <laughs> right. a cop, a criminal, a victim. <laughs> Scarpia presents himself as trying to restore justice, apprehending an escaped convict, stopping a conspiracy. Yeah, we don't really like to stand in Scarpia's shoes, though. <laughs> Even though Scarpia means shoes. Oh, no. <laughs> Is this a love story? Oh, there's plenty of love there. Yes, yes. I'm going to say definitively yes. Are there acts of anonymous sacrifice to the beloved? Anonymous. Yes, there are. We'll get to that as well. Uh, and I think most people would agree this is one of the greatest of all love stories. <sighs> what an ending, though. Is this a war story? Uh, it certainly wouldn't take place without a war going on. Yeah, as little screen time, if I can use that word, as uh, <laughs> Napoleon gets. This actually ends not with the end of the opera, but it yeah. ends with Napoleon's victory or defeat of the monarchist. Is this a political thriller? Is the value one of powerful against powerless? Are there rival politicians? Well, we certainly have the powerful versus the powerless. And we have the powerless represented by Agnolotti, the former council of the Republic. And we have the monarchist represented by Scarpia. Hmm. Is this an evolution plot? Does a character achieve their full humanity? Or is it a devolution plot? Does a character lose their humanity? Yes and yes. Yeah. So what genre is Tosca? Oh, you're just trying to convince me why this is a touchstone, a great work of art. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't need to be convinced, but I like the details. The story is intensified by playing to and against audiences, understandings of expectations in all these genres. Yeah. We've all seen thousands and thousands of stories over our lifetimes. Right. And all the conventions of the stories are in our heads. And True. masterfully, the librettist here is playing with all of that to intensify both the emotions and the intellectual engagement of the audience. Yeah, it makes you appreciate why Puccini and Verdi, for that matter, got so excited seeing this play and seeing the possibilities for dramatization in an operatic form.
You're listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for everyone. Opera for Everyone airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL, Wyoming's only community radio station. If you'd like to hear more conversations about opera, please subscribe to the Opera for Everyone podcast. And if you subscribe, rate, and review us, you'll be helping with our mission to bring opera to everyone by helping others to find this show. Stay with us. The second half of today's show is coming right up. Welcome back to the second half of Opera for Everyone. I am your host, Pat Wright, and I'm here today with Greg. Hello. Before we go any further with the discussion of the opera, I'd like to take a moment to thank the people responsible for these music clips that we've been listening to. This recording was made in 1992, recorded live at the Philadelphia Academy of Music with the Philadelphia Orchestra, conducted by Ricardo Muti. It features the Westminster Symphonic Choir, led by Joseph Flumerfeld, and the Philadelphia Boys Choir, led by Robert G. Hamilton. Singing the role of Tosca, we have Carol Vaness. Mario Cavaradossi is sung by Giuseppe Giacomini. The role of Baron Scarpia is sung by Giorgio Zancanaro. Agnolotti, sung by Daniello Seriocco. The sacristan, Alfred Mariotti. And then we have our police agents and officers. Spoletta is sung by Piero de Palma. And Sicaroni is sung by Orizio Mori. Thank you one and all for this beautiful music. Pat, I think it's time for the Opera Helmet Quiz. It is, Greg. It is time for the Opera Helmet Quiz. Can you summarize what happened in Act One? Oh, you want me to do it? Well, I suppose I can. The inspiration for this opera began when Puccini saw the Victorian Sardou play La Tosca with Sarah Bernhardt. She was so powerful and the story was so dramatic that Puccini simply had to have it. Took a little doing, but he did finally get it. And this play Greg described as a touchstone because it's something by which you can measure other works of art. It encompasses so many great elements. It encompasses so many genres. Verismo comes to mind because of the gritty realism. So the opera opens with the escaped political prisoner, Agnolotti, bursting into a church. He is looking for sanctuary and, more importantly, looking for the key to a chapel that we later learn his sister has left for him, along with some women's clothes so that he can change his appearance and be safe in his escape. He's confronted by our lead male in the opera, the painter Mario Cavaradossi, who at first doesn't recognize his good friend Agnolotti because he is so changed from the difficulties he's experienced in jail. But once Mario Cavaradossi knows that this is his friend, he is all in with saving his friend, not just because of friendship, but because he believes in the cause for which Agnolotti was imprisoned. He believes in the cause of republicanism. And in this case, that means non-monarchical power, the sort of government that, for instance, Napoleon stands for, or at least did in 1800 when this is set, that the people should have a voice and it should not just be the aristocrats ruling. Before long, 
we hear a woman's voice, and this is Tosca, because quite honestly, there aren't any women in the show besides Tosca. She's calling Mario Mario because she's going to see her boyfriend, her lover, Mario, and she is instantly jealous. Throughout this first act, Tosca will be referred to as a jealous woman, and that she is. She suspects that he's hiding something, but she doesn't understand that what he's in fact hiding is his friend who's escaped from prison. Mario Cavaradossi and Floria Tosca are singer and are painter. These two artists have a moment to sing some beautiful love songs to each other, express their love, make a plan to get together at his little villa after a performance that she's giving. And he finally succeeds in getting her out the door. He protects her by not letting her know what's going on, because as he explains to Anya Lodi in a moment, she tells her confessor everything. And as much as the church is where Anya Lodi came for refuge, the sanctuary he was seeking and found was in the gifts that his sister left for him, not in the institution of the church itself, because in this world, the church is aligned with the power of the monarchy, the people in charge right now. And that is also expressed through the sacristan, who is the fellow taking care of the church. Once Tosca has left, Cavaradossi reengages with his friend Agnolotti and explains to him how to reach and hide safely in his own cottage. Agnolotti departs, Cavaradossi leaves the stage, and we have this chorus of choir boys appear. They're boys, so they're acting like boys, <laughs> a little bit noisy, full of life, and the sacristan's trying to keep them in order. But when the news comes through that Napoleon, who was in battle with their forces, that Napoleon has been defeated, there's an eruption of celebration with the choir boys, and into this scene of disorder enters the villain of the piece, whose motive, whose musical signature we've heard many times, although this is the first time we are seeing him. And he is there in all his hypocrisy, criticizing the commotion in the church. But that's not his main point. He is there to catch Agnolotti. But it's not Agnolotti or even Cavaradossi that he encounters. It is Tosca herself. She has returned to explain to Mario their plans to get together later that evening will have to be changed because she has a command performance to celebrate this victory over Napoleon. Scarpia, however, makes use of the fact that he knows that Tosca and Cavaradossi are a couple because Scarpia has found one little piece of the costume left behind by Agnolotti's sister. Agnolotti did not take the woman's fan with him when he disguised himself. Scarpia, the villain that he is, uses it, comparing himself to Iago and the handkerchief. He uses it to inflame jealousy that he knows is just below the surface for Tosca. She sees the fan and has all her prior suspicions confirmed, and immediately after she runs off to confront Cavaradossi in his cottage, Scarpia instructs his henchman to go after Tosca. Follow her. She is a good falcon. She will lead you to our prey. The act concludes most powerfully with this Te Deum, this hymn of praise and celebration for the military victory, interwoven with Scarpia's thoughts. Scarpia lets us know that top of mind for him is Tosca herself, 
that is the prey he wishes to catch. But he also wants to get this escaped political prisoner, Agnolotti, and his accomplice, Cavaradossi. And it ends with Scarpia telling us that his desire, his lust for Tosca is such that it makes him forget God. And of course, Act Two comes next in the action of the opera. But there is a lot that's happened between the two acts. Part of the skill of the librettists was making sure that as the action of Act Two unfolds, you figure out what happened between leaving the church at the end of Act One and this new setting. So the curtain rises on Act Two. And where are we? We are in Scarpia's apartments in the Palazzo Farnese, which is the great palace where the, the queen, the queen who has demanded Tosca sing for a performance celebrating their victory. The actual queen is Queen Maria Carolina, who is, interestingly, the daughter of Empress Maria Theresa and the sister of the very famous Marie Antoinette. She is the one who has the royal monarchical power at this time. But we don't see the whole palace. We know it's there. We are simply in the rooms inhabited by Scarpia. When we talked about the setting of Act One, we talked about it in three ways, a practical setting, a deeper answer, and story answer. We can do the same thing here. Practically, this is the finest of high Renaissance palaces. This is very much where the seat of political power would have been at this moment in history. As a deeper answer, this is a building that was built not for the traditional reason. Palaces are places to store and display wealth. Mm. This was built to project power. This was built by Alexandra Farnese, who we remember as Pope Paul III. Mm. The people who worked for him on this palace included Michelangelo, among others. The building is more than sufficiently grand for Scarpia's office, but it is also just the rawest possible display of political power. This is an opera world in which there is no law. There is only the law of might makes right. Yeah. And this palace is the representation of might. There's a third reason too, or the story reason, which just as in Act One, the iconography was so important. The iconography here is critically important. In this palace is a great work of art, The Loves of the Gods. It's important in our history because it pinpoints a turning point from mannerism to what came after. My. But it's also quite resonant with the story. Hmm. Uh, when we say the loves of the gods, love here may be understood as a euphemism. <laughs> the Roman gods' lovers suffered horribly after being loved by the gods, beyond yes. comprehension. The gods were sated, but only for the moment. Elements of this great work of art include 13 painted narrative scenes, 12 bronze medallions, all portraying mythical stories of love, abduction, and tragedy. These are scenes of the powerful seizing the powerless. A bit on the nose for the action of this <laughs> act, perhaps, but very fitting wall art for the scene. This is palace as emblem of power. Indeed. And now, Greg, can you tell us about the action of the second act of this three-act opera? Scarpia dines as he waits news that Curvidosi and Agnoletti have been captured, after which Scarpia will have them executed. Nice touch that he's dining while he waits for that. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, speaking of different productions, some of the productions have the, the music that leads into Act Two, where he's simply dining, or some productions I've seen have him indulging in other appetites. He has lots of women with him. They will leave Scarpia's alone for a moment, but not long before we see other familiar characters enter. It's his henchmen or police officers, Sicaroni. Spoleto will be along shortly. Well, Scarpia sends one of the henchmen to bring Tosca to him. The henchman's name starts with an S. Of course. <laughs> as soon as she's finished singing the Knight's Victory Cantata, celebrating Napoleon's defeat in battle. If you're wondering why I sent for her, he sings an aria with the line, Sweeter far are the raptures of a violent conquest than of willing surrender. <laughs> the aria continues, Always I crave for the things that elude me. Once I've had them, I can discard them. On to stranger pleasures. What a guy. Just like the art on the wall. <laughs> he continues, God created more than one wine, more than one beauty. I want to taste all that I can wring from the hand of the maker. Let's listen to that. was the evil Baron Scarpia singing in anticipation of his imminent meeting with Floria Tosca, the diva. Three points here. First, yuck. <laughs> I, I second that. Second, we've talked about duality in this opera. Note the doubling of what he's saying about more than one beauty, which echoes Carvedosi's song about the fair-haired and the dark-haired oh, beauty. Oh, good point. But also note that they are not agreeing. This is the strongest <laughs> possible negation of what Kervidosi was singing. Yeah. And third, note what else has happened between Act 1 and Act 2. In Act 1, he sang that Tosca made him forget God. But here he sings, ring from the hands of the maker. He's not forgetting God. He's moving on to battling God. Yes. He is pure evil incarnate. I mean, Scarpia is arguably right at the top of the list of opera's great villains. Spoleto returns, fearing for his life to say that he followed Tosca to discover the villa, but Agnolotti wasn't there. Scarpia threatens to hang Spoleto, another big bad thing to do. Yeah, that's how you know somebody's truly a bad guy, when they turn on their own people if they are slightly disappointed. Exactly, he rules by fear. Mm -hmm. But Spoleto did return with Caradosi, which appeases Scarpia mm -hmm. because it keeps his plot alive. Caradosi is brought in, outraged at his arrest, they hear Tosca singing outside the window. One interesting thing about this opera is the 
number of times that we get uh, diegetic music, music with characters here as music. Every scene uh, is uh, an example of that. Yeah, that's a great point. Kervidosi's question about the escaped prisoner denies everything. Kervidosi is laughing at them, as heroes do. Remember <laughs> the final scene of Die Hard, McLean laughs at Gruber? <laughs> I do not. <laughs> Let's listen to Kervidosi as he defies Scarpa. Listening to Opera for Everyone, and Greg and I are discussing Puccini's Tosca. We've just heard an interaction between Caparadosi, who's been brought in as a prisoner to see Scarpia, as Scarpia tries to intimidate Caparadosi and get information from him. The heroic Caparadosi scoffs at Scarpia and his efforts, firm in the belief that Scarpia and all he stands for will be defeated, and that choral music that you're hearing in the background, that's part of that concert that Floria Tosca is part of. Cavaradosi has heard her voice, and that's part of what is giving him strength. As Cavaradosi smugly defies Scarpia's efforts, Scarpia says, oh no, this is not a place for laughter. This is a place for tears. Tosca's brought in. Cavaradosi warns her not to say a word. Scarpia says the chilling words. Mario Cavaradosi? This worthy judge will take your deposition. <laughs> he waves for the door to be opened to the torture chamber mm. and for Carradosi to be escorted in. The door is closed. Scarpia mentions the fan to test Floria. She says, I am not a jealous woman. <laughs> and with that, Scarpia knows that Tosca knows everything. Yes. Scarpia threatens her that if she does not betray Agnolati, quote, there is a law and I shall enforce it. Mm. Notice how he wraps his ruthlessness in lies. Yeah. The subtext is clear that he will torture Carvedosi even more ruthlessly. Scarpia describes the instrument of torture 
Uh, we will spare you the details, but we are made to know that Caravadosi is slowly being murdered. Tosca calls out to Caravadosi, who says again, I laugh at pain. They may murder him, but they will not break him. Yeah. He will not betray Agnolotti. And and true to form here, Floria Tosca looks at Scarpia and begs for mercy, mercy. I mean, this is what she expects within the bounds of her faith and her understanding of the world. Well, she is in many ways a very appealing character. Mm. She is something of a child. Right. Now Scarpia laughs, another duality. Tosca says, you're laughing, you laugh at his suffering. Well, yes, Scarpia is very much enjoying this. Yeah. Scarpia replies, you've never played a more tragical role, which is sort of meta when you think about the Absolutely. opera singer who is playing the diva in Tosca. Yeah. Yeah. Scarpia shouts for the torture to be intensified. Tosca is close to breaking. She bangs Caravadosi. One thing we won't be able to convey in this summary of the action mm. is the way that the intensity is building. When you see this in an opera house and you look around at the other people watching this, yeah. they are clutching the arms of their chair harder and harder. Fingernail impressions are being made in the wood at this point, and it's going to get much more it's intense. It's so true because he... The pressure that we feel with the, the music and the, the action on stage, I mean, that is the pressure that Scarpia is applying essentially to Tosca by torturing her lover. She's begging Kervadosi. Kervadosi says, tell him? You can't. You don't know. Mm. When he says that, he is reminding her of what they must agreed between the acts that she would say when questioned. Scarpia says, I want him to be silenced. And she breaks. She says that Agnolotti is hiding in the well in the garden. In doing so, she has betrayed them all, effectively sentencing both her lover and her friend to their executions. Kervidosi is brought in, badly injured, echoing Agnolotti's injuries suffered in prison. Mm. Epiphany for the audience here. We now know why Agnolotti was tortured in prison. They were trying to get him to betray his friends and supporters, which he would not. Tosca lies to Kervidosi, telling him that she didn't betray Agnolotti. Scarpia tells his men to go to the garden well. So Caravadosi knows that she has betrayed him and his friend. Yeah, it's in such a heartbeat that that happens where she's trying to give Mario some comfort. No, no, dear, I didn't, I didn't say anything. And when, when Scarpia overhears that, he, like a sneaky, awful snake, turns to his men and says, go to that garden well. It's so devastating. It's so devastating that Caravadosi shouts, you betrayed me. Yeah. And in almost all productions, he is going to slump to the floor, understanding what she does not, mm. which prefigures what will happen later in Act 3, when he slumps to the floor, understanding what she does not. Yeah. One of the henchmen with a S name enters, saying, <laughs> I have news of a disaster. At Marengo, Napoleon has won the battle. Yes, the earlier news of Napoleon's defeat was premature. Caveridosi is exultant. This may presage the defeat of Scarpia and the monarchists. It is remarkable, this scene, because Cavaradosi, who barely has the energy to stand or to walk, and he's just suffered this blow of his beloved Tosca having betrayed his orders, betrayed him, obviously betrayed Agnolotti, because she couldn't stand the pain of his pain any further. And when he hears about Napoleon being victorious, the strength that wells into his broken body is remarkable, near unbelievable. And sometimes the singer is even lying on the floor, 
when he sings victory, victory. So he knows his life is going to end with this episode, but he believes the greater cause will be victorious. As a hero, he understands his own life is not important. Yeah, I mean, just a historical postscript. Ultimately, Napoleon is defeated by the combined forces in Europe of monarchical power. That's going to take some time for that to all work out. But in this moment, set in the year 1800, this is a real battle that Napoleon won at this time, the Battle of Marengo. And there were false reports of his defeat. But our Cavaradossi believes that everything he is suffering is worth it if the cause wins. Scarpia sends Caradosi to prison to await his death. Yeah. Now, the Scarpia Ultimatum. Scarpia Ultimatum is a Jason Bourne novel by Robert Ludlum in which... <laughs> the Scarpia Ultimatum. All right. No. What, no. Does, what, is, what does he demand? As the great Robert McKee says, every cliche was once a great idea. <laughs> and this idea that Tosca will have to choose between two impossible choices... One is that Carrera Dossi will be executed. Two, that she will have to give herself to Scarpia. Mm. In this play about lies, we think of truth as positive. But the truth here is that Scarpia has been plotting this since the end of Act One. Yes. When she realizes what is happening, and as it dawns on her quite slowly, the horror that she feels, the agony that she feels, the pain that she feels... Scorpia says that for a price, Tosca can save Cavaradossi's life. Yeah, and she initially thinks the price is a monetary price. Right, and he again laughs. He is not a criminal. He is a monster. Yeah. The difference between criminals and monsters is that monsters can't be bought off. Yeah. He explains that she is the price. She says that she would rather take her life and looks out the window, thinking of jumping to her death, but of prefiguring it. Scarpia points out that this would simply result in Caravadosi's death as well. She begins to leave. He intuits she will go over his head to the queen. He says, your queen cannot save him. Who can pardon a dead man? Yeah. She calls him a monster. Which he is. Evil personified. Mm Mm-hmm. They hear the sound of a drum roll announcing another execution. Oh, yeah, because Caravadosi is not the only one who is suffering that fate. Tosca sings the most famous aria in the opera. Mm. One of the most famous of all arias, the one you were talking about earlier. Yes, this is the one where she talks about how she's lived her life for art. In the aria, she points out she gave her art to the people. She gave her devotion to the Lord. She plaintively asks, O Lord, my Lord, tell me why. Ah, Lord, why do you withdraw your hand from me? Let's listen to this aria. Yes.
That was Tosca singing Visi d'Art, Visi d'Amore. I have lived for art, I have lived for love. There's a touching naivete to this aria. She believes that because she has pursued her art, and because she has been devoted to her God, that she has protection from evil. They're interrupted by the news that Agnolotti has killed himself to avoid capture, who she betrayed. Tosca is broken. She says yes to Scarpia's proposal. She asks Scarpia to pardon Herodosi. But what Scarpia offers instead is that he will give instructions in her presence for the execution to be a sham, a firing squad without bullets. Mm-hmm. Scarpia instructs Spoletta, one of the henchmen with an S name, <laughs> without bullets, just the same as with Palmieri. Yeah. Do you understand me? Without bullets, just the same as with Palmieri. Do you understand me? Spoletta understands. He leaves. Tosca asks Scarpia for a letter of safe passage. As he writes and seals it, she takes the knife from his dining table. Not seeing it, he says, Tosca, now at last you're mine. She stabs him, and she says, This is Tosca's kiss. He dies. He dies a little slowly. In the process of dying, he does plead her to help him. He asks for her mercy. In opera, everyone dies slowly. (laughs) Nearly so. Fair enough. (laughs) Returning to the theme of forgiveness, she says, Yeah. He's dead. Now I forgive him. It's not an empty statement. She places candles near him and a crucifix on his body. Yeah. She does forgive him. But only once he's dead. But she does forgive him. Yes, she does. Tosca's final line in this second act is observing his dead body. She notes, and all Rome used to tremble before him. She has vanquished the monster, and true to her faith, she's forgiven him. She leaves, and the curtain falls. End of Act Two.
three of Tosca. Pat, where are we? We are in yet a different location in Rome, a real place. As we were in the other two settings. Yes, we started out in the church of San Andrea, and then we were in the Palazzo Farnese in Scarpia's apartments. Now we're in the castle San Angelo, and that is where prisoners, especially political prisoners, were held. That's where our opening character, Agnolotti, had escaped from. And now that's where we're going to find Cavaradossi. Yeah, this is Hadrian's mausoleum, a towering cylindrical building, once the tallest in Rome. During the years of the opera, it was used as a prison by the papal state. It was reported that just a few years before the action of the opera, when Pope Clement X died, all prisoners with heavy sentences were transported to St. Angelo. All prisoners at other prisons would be released. So when Agnolotti and Carapidosi were transported here, the prison would have been populated with those deemed to have committed the most serious offenses. And the inner courtyard was where executions were held. Just so we talked about in the other two settings about the practical answer versus deeper answer and story answers. The deeper answer is, what does this building mean? Where do we find its irony? In Act 1, we had a sanctuary that provided no sanctuary. Yeah. In Act 2, we had the setting of a building epitomizing power in which its master was defeated. Mm-hmm. And in Act 3, the setting is a mausoleum and a maximum security prison. Both places of no escape, from which all three people we know who were trapped there escape. The story answer, as in the prior two settings, relates to the iconography of the place. Remember the portrait of the Madonna in the church and yeah. the painting uh, Loves of the Gods in the palace? Mm-hmm. According to legend, in 1590, atop the building, a monumental statue of St. Michael was erected, sheathing his sword in celebration of the ending of the Roman plague. This was replaced in 1753 with a new statue of St. Michael sheathing his sword. These are references to Pope Gregory's vision of the sighting of St. Michael sheathing his sword, which the Pope interpreted to signal the cessation of a pestilence, the Roman plague, and the appeasement of God's wrath. As we unpack the third act of Tosca, let's reflect on the cessation of a pestilence and the appeasement of God, and the way St. Michael's sword can be echoed in a table knife. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Offstage, a shepherd boy sings. Again, diegetic music. The characters on stage hear as music, as we've had in each of the other two acts. The first act, the boys' choir singing the Te Diem of Military Triumph. The second act, Tosca singing the cantata, the victory celebration. Mm. But here, no triumph, no celebration. And one musical note that Puccini was so... One musical note, I like what you did there. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) One note about the music. Puccini was so dedicated to understanding Rome and trying to imbue this opera with realism that he worked very hard to identify and then replicate the exact pitch of the bells that they play in this area so that when we hear that in this dawn period, that's real. Puccini has done the research and he wants you to be there. He wants you to feel that you are truly there.
The shepherd sings, Wind, hear my sorrow, my sorrow and my sighing, like leaves in autumn that fade and fall in dying. Say that our vows have not been broken. Send me a token, else I must die. Sorrow, sorrow, sighing. Autumn fade, fall, dying. Mm. Vows broken, send a token, I must die. Sorrow, fall, I must die. This song shifts the tempo and mood of the opera. Yes. Far beyond that, though, these words are part of what the audience's subconscious races back to as we try to process the deaths to come. The jailer appears and offers Caravadosi the services of the weeding priest. Caravadosi waves this off with a simple no. Unlike so many heroes of legend and myth, Caravadosi takes no comfort in a promised heaven or Valhalla. What Caravadosi instead asks is to be permitted to write a note for the jailer to deliver to Tosca. Mm. Caravadosi offers his ring, his last possession, as bribe. His last wish is to say farewell to someone he loves and cherishes. Jailer agrees, gives him paper and pen, and Caravadosi sings. Yes, and in his song, we're going to revisit one of those musical signatures that we spoke about, his love for Tosca. I think I'd like to play just a little bit of that love music from the first act, just to reacquaint your ears. And then when you hear the piece I play from the third act, you will notice that same tune, but oh, how it's changed. That was the music from the first act representing the love between Tosca and Cavaradossi. And now let's hear the song that Cavaradossi sings as he assumes he's saying farewell in absentia to Tosca. He will never see her again. He's never loved her so much, and he's never loved life so much. Yeah. 
song, he remembers their sweet rapture, and he despairs, singing, Forever now my dream of love has ended, and when the day breaks, I die in desperation. I die in desperation, and never with so much love with living, in love with living. It's important to remember that he is not singing this to us in the audience. Mm. He is composing a letter to her, and he is writing this letter to give her comfort after his death. As this opera closes, this musical motif will be played again with the composer's instruction to play as loudly as possible, as if Tosca herself is singing those words. Forever now my dream of love has ended, and when the day breaks I die in desperation. I die in desperation, and never was so much in love with living, in love with living. But she doesn't sing those words, as they come after her departure from the stage. Tosca rushes in, sees him in tears, and shows her the rite of passage, reading the words Scarpia wrote. The bearer, Floria Tosca, and her companion may cross the border. The subtext is so present and so powerful throughout this scene, and really throughout the entire act. Scarpia knew what this meant when he wrote it. Yeah. Tosca has no idea. The audience's dread deepens. Yes. Tosca tells him of Scarpia's ultimatum. She recounts the action of Act Two. She ends saying, I plunge the knife into his evil heart. We listen to that. Yes. He is astounded. You, he cries, it was you who destroyed him? My darling, so gentle and so kind? Again, duality. Carvedosi underestimates her just as Scarpia did. <laughs> he takes a moment to marvel at this woman. Tosca, however, is focused on the task at hand. She explains to Carvedosi that Scarpia has given instructions for mock execution. She explains that when the soldiers fire, their rifles loaded with blanks, the Carvedosi is to fall appearing dead. Then together, they will escape and cross the border. They exult a reminder of all the exultations to this point in the opera. This will be the last. Oh, 
We should not, however, misunderstand their exultations. Tosca is genuinely happy. She believes her nightmare is over and escaped to freedom where her beloved is only moments away. Yes. But even as she tells Caradosi to put on the act for the soldiers, he is putting an act for her, neither of the play's deceptions. It's said that in early performances of the opera, Caradosi was played as if at this moment in the opera, he believes they will escape. But he doesn't. He knows he will die. He understands he has only moments to live. He also knows she will be executed for the murder of Scarpia. And as his last heroic act, he is comforting her and giving her a few moments of happiness before the end. So heartrending. Uh, you want to believe. You want to believe with, with Tosca. But it's hard. It's reminiscent of the feeling at the end of Romeo and Juliet. Yes, when you want it to turn out differently just this once. <laughs> and if I can say something that many or most people wouldn't agree with, while it's absolutely clear that Tosca consciously believes she has defeated Scarpia and that Carapidosi will live, somewhere deep in her subconscious, I believe she also knows what is about to happen. She sings, To the sinking sun will be ascending, freed from all bonds, like clouds that float above the ocean. There will only be happiness unending. The text is that they will sail happily away together with a rite of passage, but the subtext is saying something else. Yeah. As part of this scene, which is full of pathos and emotion, we get just a moment of what is going to pass for humor, a little bit of release of the tension. When she's explaining to Cavaradosi, you're going to have to pretend, you're going to have to be an actress like I am and fall down dead when you hear the shots. Oh, if I could really teach you, we actresses, we know how to fall down and not really hurt ourselves. Don't hurt yourself, darling, but make it look real. And back and forth, and he's like, yes, 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 yes. Gerardosi, almost giving it away, says, tell me again that our love is forever. Mm. It is so sweet to hear you make that promise. The text and subtext are now merging, which is fascinating. She replies, the hope we created can never die, you and I. Our faith is growing stronger in knowing when we... Our dead, our love lives on. Love that is greater than death will shine in the dark long after we are gone. Soon I will close your eyes with tender kisses and whisper words of love into your ear. Previously, Kevradosi was comforting her. In an odd way, here she's comforting the audience, similarly giving us words oh, yes. with which to process the ending. The firing squad has appeared and is made ready. Kevradosi says, I'm ready, which means one thing to the soldiers another to Tosca, and another to himself. Yeah. Heroes are born prepared to die. That's what gives them their strength to be heroes. Mm. The weight is almost too much for Tosca. She's battling her dread. The order's given, shots ring out, Caravadosi falls. Typically at this point, the sergeant would administer the coup de grace. With bayonet, he would assure the prisoner's death. There is a matter of administration in this. The execution can now be recorded, but also inherently an act of mercy, as it would end the suffering. But here's Spalletta, one of those... S-word, henchman, waves off the sergeant. Of course, the practical matter here is that a sham execution can't end with a coup de grace. Right. But by way of intensification of the story's themes, this is also a subtle reminder that there is no grace, no mercy in this world. The soldiers have departed. Tosca calls for Mario to stand and to go with her. But then she sees. Is this how it ends, she sings. Dead, Mario, Mario. The monster has risen from the grave, just like Palmieri. And now we know Scarpia lied, his final deception. There were bullets in the rifles. Just as Scarpia underestimated Tosca, she underestimated him. And has the monster triumphed? The monster wanted to damn her, to place her where she would no longer be begging for Caravadosi's life, to place her where she would be begging for her death. Shouts are heard, 
Scarpia's murder has been discovered. Mm-hmm. They shot, murdered by Tosca. Scarpia has been find her. We will make you pay for Scarpia's murder. And she runs to the parapet shouting, With my life, O Scarpia, the Lord will judge. Then throws herself over the parapet. Every principal character in the opera is now dead. Yes. Blackout. Curtain. How do you feel at the end of Tosca? I remember the first time I saw Tosca. I had not read ahead. <laughs> I didn't know what was coming. Which was a great joy, in a way, to, to get to experience Tosca fresh. And I just knew when they repeated in Act Two, just like with Palmieri, just like with Palmieri. At that moment, I knew it was a sham, but I, just as you said before, with Romeo and Juliet, I wanted to believe it wasn't true, just as Tosca wants to believe it isn't true. But I feel not as hopeless as you might with all these deaths, because I really do believe that Tosca's faith is that strong. And all that talk of getting away to a better place, I believe she's talking about heaven. Yeah, so much has been written about the ending and meaning of Tosca. It's so powerful. Commentators range from incomprehension to conviction, with those expressing conviction diametrically disagreeing with each other. I don't think I would presume to have the answer. I don't think you would presume to have the answer. And I doubt there is an answer. This is a work of art that stands up to watching and rewatching. Yeah. This is a touchdown, and we are the alloy being graded. I believe strongly that if you see this opera once every five years of your life, that each time you'll come away with a different view of its meaning which may tell you more about that last five years of your life than it tells you about the opera. I know that's the case for me. It certainly is cathartic at the end. Epiphany and emotional release collapse into an instant. This play about lies ends with this feeling, if only for a moment, that we've glimpsed truth. Let's talk about three of those truths. A truth about love. Prokofiev's ballet, Romeo and Juliet, ends on a C major chord. Bernstein's West Side Story ends on a C major chord. Huh. Not minor, major. Hope. Something has been gained but at a great price. Tosk ends with a reprise with music from Caradossi's aria, as we said. All the stars were shining. Tosk and Caradossi both had the same final thoughts, the sweet remembrance of their passion. Whether or not one believes in a heaven, one can believe in love so strong that it surpasses death. That is Tosca and Caradossi's love. Second truth is a truth about monsters. There is a horror plot at the center of Tosca. The monster is defeated, but at a great price. And while the monster has been killed, it has not been killed dead. The monster rises, and in some readings of the opera, triumphs in damning Tosca, and making her choose death as preferable to life. Oh. Even if death comes at her own hands, to her a mortal sin. Can evil be defeated at any price? That's not my reading. No. Third truth is about humanity, which I would argue is ultimately about what the opera is about. We mentioned earlier that all of Tosca's dramatic actions reveal her evolving understanding of forgiveness. Yes. There is a duality, as always in this opera, with the devolution of Scarpia's humanity balancing the evolution of Tosca's humanity. Mm. When she allows herself to be kissed in front of the Madonna, she sings, she's so forgiving. When she forgives Scarpia's monstrousness, placing her crucifix and candles and saying, now I forgive him. And then just before her leap, when she forgives herself for her part in all that has gone before. Yes. She defeated Scarpia, not by escaping the vengeance of his henchmen. Remember, he was not trying to kill her. No. He was trying to damn her. Mm -hmm. By forgiving herself, and by coming to believe absolutely in the forgiveness of her God, she triumphed over that damnation. Through her relationship with Caravadosi, she came to understand love. Through her relationship with Scarpia, she came to understand evil. Those twin understandings perfected her humanity. How does Tosca end? Tosca defeats not tyranny, but evil itself. Tosca does defeat the monster. Not all future incarnations of evil, but this incarnation of evil. The lovers are together forever, wherever undying love goes after death. And Tosca comes into her full humanity, understanding, 
accepting and sacrificing. What is love? Sacrifice. How is monumental evil defeated? By sacrifice. Blackout. Curtain. And I must say, Greg, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for all of your thought and insight into this amazing work of art. So appreciate you being here with me on Opera for Everyone. Thank you, Greg. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Opera for Everyone. If you missed any of today's show, you can find this episode and many others on your favorite podcast app under Opera for Everyone. And while you're there, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. It helps others to find us. Opera for Everyone airs every Sunday morning from 9 to 11 Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL Jackson, Wyoming. Opera can be challenging, but everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. Our mission is to make opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable. Because we believe opera is for everyone. (laughs) 